Welcome to the Amphibian Press Podcast. I'm V.S. Holmes, and with me today is Humphrey Hawksley, the thriller author of Man on Edge and Man on Ice, as well as many, many other titles. Uh, thank you so much for, for joining me today, all the way from England. Thank you. It's, it's a pleasure and privilege to be on the show. So tell me a little bit, you know, for, for those of us who haven't gotten a chance to dive into your work yet, tell me a little bit about your newest release, which is Man on Edge, which I believe releases this week. Am I correct? Uh, that's right. It actually released on March 3rd. So it was oh, awesome. last week. I, I lose track where it was last week. Okay. And, um, and it's the second in a series, which I started a couple of years back with a book called Man on Ice. And that was set on the U.S.-Russian border. Okay. Uh, the reason I said it there was because in my other life as a BBC foreign correspondent, I went there in 2015 when the uh, Crimea-Ukraine crisis was happening, if mm -hmm. you remember that. Yeah. And, and Russia annexed a, a bit of Ukraine into Crimea, and then it started and sponsored a civil war. And then the Malaysian Airlines jet was tragically shot down, and all of that stuff was happening. And here in Europe and in Britain, we were talking about the new Cold War, and all of mm -hmm. that came up again. And this is where the border with Russia is. So this is where the jets are scrambled all the time and the troops are deployed. And we've got Checkpoint Charlie in Berlin, uh, which is now, of course, you know, a unified city and unified country. But you, you, you had the Berlin Wall there and all that kind of stuff. And I thought, OK, but there is a place where these two superpowers actually have a border. Right. And I thought, does anybody know about this border? <laughs> because I didn't, and I've traveled the world to all sorts of disasters and everything like that, and I didn't know about it much. So I opened an old atlas that I have sort of symbolically now in my study. Mm -hmm. And there is the, uh, there's Alaska that juts out there, and then there's the end of Siberia, a place called Chukotka, uh, and that's the Bering Strait. And there's about 55 miles between America and the mainland of Siberia, but right in the middle of that strait, there are two islands. Mm -hmm. uh, one is American and the other one is Russian and they're barely two miles apart and on the uh, American island there's a, a native village of about 80 people mm -hmm. and they get up every morning and they look out and they're looking out basically onto a Russian military base this is where America and Russia meets the, the, the meeting of the two superpowers so I wrote Man on Ice about uh, a thriller based in that area, obviously between Russia and, and America, stuff going on there. But the hero that I took, took him from that island. Mm -hmm. And in these native communities, in fact, you know, we all know many projects, many communities anywhere around the world, there are huge problems of domestic violence, right. close-knit communities, um, alcoholism, all that sort of thing. And there's only a couple of ways to get out. One of them, of course, is to join the military. Mm -hmm which is what my hero Ray Kazena did. And he broke through, he joined as, uh, and, and broke through to officer class, uh, was very skilled, very determined to, to make his way in the world and not be uh, trapped into this community, which he loved, but he <laughs> needed to get out. And he, he became the hero and Man on Ice was a success. And I signed the second contract for Man on Edge, which was the one that came out last week. But I moved Ray Kazena and, and a couple of the other characters from, from Man on Ice, I moved them to the Norway-Russian okay. border. 
on the other side of the Arctic. Uh, and, and again, it was, you know, Russia, uh, you know, being very tricky. And up there in the Arctic, where you, the ice is melting and the sea routes are opening up, uh, the key military piece of technology that everybody has to be ahead of is in submarine technology. The quieter your submarine, the stealthier it is underneath the ice, mm -hmm. the more you control the waters. Those who control the waters control the world, as Sir Walter Raleigh said many hundreds <laughs> of years ago. <laughs> and, and so this is basically a chase uh, a story about getting some submarine technology secrets out of Russia uh, before some big military exercises start or, or some horrors can be unleashed upon <laughs> the world. And again, it's Rekazena um, using his skills of the environment, using the way that if you're raised in a hostile uh, environment, uh, very much with the, with the natural life there, not with Netflix and all the rest of it, then you, you sort of think and see things differently. And he took those skills and he used them with the Norwegians mm -hmm. uh, to uh, sort of get the better of his, his Russian enemies. Um, and uh, so that's Man on Edge, and it's actually come out to some some quite uh, lovely uh, reviews, actually, which I'm, uh, I've got to say, you know, as as writers, you know, your audience is writer, you're a writer, uh, and you're sitting there for months on end, wondering whether the sentence you've written or the story <laughs> you're doing is any good. And you right. can't discuss it with anybody, can you? <laughs> no, I mean, you can you can share it with friends, but I feel like it's it's still like, you know, you, you run that risk of like, no, no, it's totally fine. It's great. And you're like, hmm. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they're going to say, exactly. I mean, one of, the, one of the things I say, just interrupting myself from mm -hmm. is that, is that, you know, you, 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 you get this as well. I get people mm -hmm. coming in and saying, you know, can you see my manuscript or I'm writing a story? Let me tell you about it and all the rest of it. What piece of advice can you give me if they actually ask that? And I say, the one piece of advice I give you is don't tell anybody about it or show anything to anybody until you're finished and the first people you show it to make sure they're not your best friends or your family right give right. it to a professional outsider mm -hmm. and, and 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 pay them a little bit of money for it or, or swap a favor or something because I, i'm sure you've known this i have known but you know they give it to their best friends and the best friend says what they think and they're not best friends anymore very quickly. Right. <laughs> yeah, I definitely, I definitely feel that way. I, I remember hearing about, you know, writing your first draft in a vacuum, um, which obviously like isn't technically possible, but as, as close as we can get. And then once you've finished it to the best of, of your ability and you've put it away and now you're returning to it, that's when you can start to incorporate people's thoughts, people's opinions. Maybe, you know, you've, you've read a new book recently that really um, did, did a good job at something that you're also trying to do in, in a similar way or, or in a different way. And you can then go in with all of, all, all of this advice and um, all of these new thoughts. But to try and get the initial idea down without any of that interfering, is, it's so hard. Oh, it's, it's no, one of the most irritating elements is that, I mean, you have your genre, I have my genre. It's all right. sort of basically storytelling and the <laughs> flair that we, we have for that. So you're doing that. And I've done a geopolitical thriller 
uh, about sort of the thing I just described with Man on Edge. Mm -hmm. And your other things is, oh, you're doing that, are you? Why don't you do a, something like Harry Potter? Because that sells really well. <laughs> and you look at this person and you think you have got no idea what it takes to construct and structure a story mm -hmm. or a narrative and then to bring in the characters and bring in the reveals and bring in the mystery and bring in the action and make sure they're all paced properly. Right. It's a hugely intricate job. And then someone says, uh, oh, well, I think I'm going to write a, I think I'm going to write a thriller when I retire from being an accountant. <laughs> and I say, well, I think I'm going to be an accountant when I retire from being a thriller writer. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's interesting too. And, and I, I find this more common maybe with, sort of the, the classic genre fiction, which is part of why I focus on it, is a lot of people do focus on those sensational titles, you know, like Hunger Games or Harry Potter. And I mean, those, those happen to be young adult examples, but you know, it, it happens everywhere. And not so much on the staples of the reading community, because like not not everyone can write Harry Potter. And frankly, not, not everyone wants to read something like, like mm. Harry Potter. But the big names who have just been, you know, so consistent with their storytelling and consistent with their, their genre and, and their success and skill are those, you know, classic romance writers, classic thriller writers, classic old school sci-fi writers. And I think that there's something to that. And it's like this, like, like a staple food, you know, it's people don't necessarily praise it all the time, but you need it. Yeah, ab absolutely. And if you, I mean, the great Clive Cussler, who died last week, uh, yeah. aged 88, mm -hmm. I grew up with him, right. essentially, uh, who, who created these wonderful adventures. And I think it, it's also a matter of sticking, sticking to what you do. If, if you think that it's, it's there and it's working, it's got a readership, expand that readership. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I have a great friend who I, who I won't name here, who was an incredibly successful historical romance writer and always hit the New York Times list. And this person wanted to write a thriller. Uh, and and the, the, the readership didn't go with her. Right. Uh, so she had to go back to what she had built her name and her, her readers on. And the thriller mm -hmm. did okay. But she could see that if she did that, then she'd lose the millions of readers she had with historical romance. Right. And, not, and get a fraction of those if she, if she started on the thriller thing, which it takes years and years to grow. Mm -hmm. I mean, if, if you look at somebody as successful as, say, Lee Child with Jack Reacher. Right. Um, who's become, I mean, it must have been 10 years before he got the sort of traction that propelled Jack Reacher into being a global character. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and the other interesting thing about that, and I'm sure you get this as, as well as many of your listeners might, uh, you know, you do something and all everybody's interested in, in is, well, when's the movie going to be made? <laughs> <laughs> and well, if, if, you, if you look at, um, if, if you go back and look at the Jack Reacher character again, that it, it, Lee Child created Jack Reacher into a globally recognized character without a single piece of celluloid being shot on him. Right, exactly. And, and now that is happening and has happened, but, it, but, but the, it was the books and the reading of the books that created that. Mm -hmm. Well, and I also think that not every 
I mean, filmmakers are incredibly talented, but not every story translates um, perfectly to film. And I mean, everyone always says like, oh, the book is better than the, than the movie or whatever. And But also some movies are much better than the novelization that happens, you know, maybe, maybe later. And I think because they're so different in, in format that a lot of people sort of miss all of the stuff that has to go on, but behind that. And it's like, well, maybe, you know, some books need to stay stay books, you know, and that, that doesn't mean that they're not good enough to become film. It just means that it, it's not a direct translation, so to speak. Exactly. I mean, I always think that when they talk about the, the, the movie book comparison, I mean, it's, you can't really compare it. I mean, it's, it's a, um, you know, it's a, it's, it's, it's a Ford Chevrolet better than a jumbo jet. Right. <laughs> it's, it's not something that you could you or is is tennis a better game than football right i, I mean it it doesn't actually because if you if you look at the uh, when, you, when you're looking at a a, a, a a movie you've you've got thousands of different images and voices and and, and, and movements coming at you all at once when you're mm -hmm. looking at a book you have your imagination and the words on the page right so because your, your your work totally ticks like all of my little um, pet pet interests, so to speak. <laughs> um, you know, I'm I'm fascinated by very isolated areas um, and and desolate landscapes and all of the sort of extreme things that happen to the psyche um, when you're exposed to those things. My my mom uh, grew up on a very small island that you know ran off generator power during the winter. Well, all all, all the time, but it was very isolated during the winter. And so that- In, in, in New England or? Yes, uh, yeah, 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 she, yeah, she grew up okay. on Block Island, which is off of Rhode Island. Okay. Um, and I think just like a couple of years ago, they, they switched over from gas generators. But um, so that, that kind of thing just, just fascinates me. And were you able to, because obviously you've traveled the world, were you able to go visit those locations um, that you were writing about? Yes, I awesome. did. I, I think I would, I mean, getting to the, the, the Alaskan island, <coughs> excuse me, it's called Little Diamond. Mm -hmm. And getting there was uh, an adventure in itself because you fly to Anchorage and then to Nome, which is an old gold rush town mm -hmm. uh, on, the, on the west coast there. And then you have to get a, a helicopter that only goes twice a week. You basically have to charter your own helicopter, right? Uh, and that lands you at the island. Now the island is often clouded in fog, mm -hmm. um, and if that, so we got to Nome and we had to wait for two or three days before the helicopter could fly. And Nome's not a, a huge place, so there were no hotel rooms <laughs> and all the rest of it. You know, it's a, it's a sort of it really is. It's a one street town. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and then we got out there and uh, and there's no hotels, no cars on this island, nothing. Um, so we slept in on the floor of a school classroom. Luckily, it was um, it was the holiday time. I didn't know. And you have to bring your own food because right. there are no shops that sell food. I mean, there's a sort of store, but there's nothing there and you had to cook your own food. Um, and also, in order to, to, to go there, you have to get prior permission from the tribal council. Right, of course. And there were, are people that arrive and, and, and that thinking they could just go there because it's just like sort of going anywhere in the States. And, uh, and they get bundled straight back onto the helicopter again. 
Right. Um, But it was the most incredible. I was meant to be there. I had budgeted to be there for 36 hours, I think. So the helicopter flies in on a Monday and flies out on a Wednesday. I was there for more than a week. Mm-hmm. Um, and but it it enabled to get to know the people that live there. Um, and you have, on the one hand, you have a sort of modern uh, English speaking. Uh, you, you, know, you know, all the kids are there in their sort of t-shirts and and and, and funny hairdos. You know, working the uh, um, the internet and playing mm-hmm. games and all that sort of thing. Uh, and then the other, you've got uh, the sort of the, the Eskimo, they, they call themselves Eskimos, uh, you know, who have the Eskimo culture of going out hunting, uh, mm-hmm. picking vegetables, uh, making your own food, being totally self-sufficient. And on the island there, as I said, there's about 80 people, there were a fair number of, of Iraq and Afghanistan veterans. Okay. Uh, so I drew all that together to create the character. Mm-hmm. Uh, that I had, so I had a fairly good confidence that this, you know, this is not a character plucked from my imagination. This is a, a composite character uh, of the of, of, of the types of people that live on that island. And of course, the interesting thing is, you you'd know for your 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 mother's island, your own background, mm-hmm. is that if you if you grow up as an islander, then sort of moving into that big bustle of world, you know, going from that island, and then walking down Fifth Avenue or something. Or going, you know, mm-hmm. working the big cities uh, it is a whole different sense of being aware of your environment. You're right. Uh, yeah. And where does the danger come from? Uh, how do I act in this situation? Uh, what are the, you know, instead of expecting a, a storm to come in or a cloud cover to bring danger, what is going to bring danger to you on the New York subway? Right. Well, because it's it's completely distinct. I mean, the the two environments have almost nothing in common. Um, yeah. So. It's apart from human beings. Right. Which, that, that there might be the problem. <laughs> um, well, I, I think that's, that's so fascinating because I work as an archaeologist and, you know, we, we interact on a fairly regular basis with a lot of, um, you know, tribal people and tribal monitors. And, you know, in, in New England, I, that's, which is where I work, you know, we have... A huge number of, of cities compared to you know anywhere near the Arctic Circle, and so when we see that relationship between sort of more traditional culture and uh, you know more more modern culture, it's it's much more blended, I think, um, mm-hmm. and mm. it it manifests in, in in a very different way. So I just I, I find that fascinating. Mm. Blended in what way do you think? Well, I think the the divide between the generations, as far as um, you know, people who focus on more traditional um, way of life, and then you know, a more modern um, colonizer sort of way of life, is is much less obvious because everyone is sort of interacting with this more modern world in this Western society, and I think it's. Maybe maybe there's been more of a loss of culture because of that, but I also think you know a, a lot of that has to do with um, this is where colonizers first landed, so it's that that interaction has been happening for a, a lot longer. You know, I I find that fascinating because your archaeology uh, would go back only so far compared to right. say what they find in Greece or Athens or something. Exactly. But I was I was in a conversation 
um, this is slightly tangential, but it's 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 actually <laughs> what we're talking about. Is a conversation we have a county in Norfolk, uh, on the, in the east of England, which is pretty flat, mm -hmm. and there are, there are no uh, motorways there, so you have to go through winding roads all the time. And I was talking to someone from there, and he said, I said, why are the roads so winding? And he said, that's because the Romans never came here. <laughs> and I said, I said, what do you mean? He said, well, a Roman road is a straight road. Yes. But an Anglo-Saxon road winds around all the villages. Mm -hmm. And I said, why is that? He said, because the Romans went in and colonized. And they just built the roads through whatever they did to get from A to B. Right. Whereas it, the, in, in the, you know, if you were an Anglo-Saxon trying to build a road, you'd get a complaint from this village and that village. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. and, and I do a lot of, lot of work as a journalist on, on this sort of... Um, you know, one one civilization coming into another, which you must, you study obviously a, a lot too. So, mm -hmm. so one of the things is the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative, where they're building all this infrastructure stuff around, and the Chinese right. are building motorways and airports and ports. You know, they're opening ten or fifteen a day. Everybody loses cost. You know, loses count of them. Mm -hmm. And this is the this is the colonizer, isn't it? The new civilizer going into a place that is not as strong. Um, and doesn't have the political uh, government or management to actually get that sort of thing done. Right. Well, and what's, I mean, for, for me, what's really fascinating is my particular line of archaeology. We go in before they put in these new roads, these new pipelines, these new power lines. Wow. So we're that, that in-between state, um, you know, as this infrastructure is progressing, um, and we're sort of trying to find this this middle ground between the the tribes that might be impacted, and then, you know, the man, so to speak. Yes. And how far do you go back? Um, um, what sort of year dates are we talking about? Well, it, it depends on the project. You know, we'll we'll go in and we'll um, see what was potentially in the area. So a lot of times we we are working with Euro American history as well. You know, I've, I've worked on mm -hmm. sixteen hundred forts and things like that, mm -hmm. um, but we're sort of looking for whatever is possibly there. Um, and we won't, we won't test places that aren't um, potentially culturally significant. So we're looking at landscape as well and, and what the landscape used to look like, which is kind of cool, um, you know, as, as rivers and, and things change. But my particular focus is on um, more paleo-Indian technology and then um, bones and stuff, because my, my background's in okay. Yeah. Yeah. Because mm -hmm. yes. uh, is there still a a sense of the land and the heritage and the belonging in because I, 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 I have a feeling the way our global politics is going mm -hmm. that this is becoming a much stronger element within it so that the, the sense of place the birthplace particularly community place uh, the sort of um, idea that this is our land and it has almost some sort of spiritual attachment to us mm -hmm. i think i think a lot of people do have that and i don't know if maybe people who gravitate towards that that type of thinking find themselves in archaeology or in um, environmental careers because of that you know I'm, I'm not sure if it's a chicken or egg thing um mm. but i i know that whenever i'm i'm working on a crew and you know we, we do find ourselves in, in fairly remote areas maybe not compared to Siberia, but, um, <laughs> you know. Remote, up, <laughs> remote is remote. <laughs> yeah, up, I mean, I've, I've worked in upstate Maine, and that, that can get pretty rough. Um, but 
you know, I'll, I'll be out there with, with people. And, you know, there, there was one project where we were out there and, you know, other than a few hunters um, and hikers, like people weren't there um, mm. on the same scale. And my, my friend and I, we were just sitting on the shore of this river and you can feel it. You can feel you can feel it. And I mean, obviously this isn't my land, you know, I'm, I'm a, a white person. I'm descended from Dutch and Irish, you know, I'm, this, this isn't my land in that mm. aspect, but you can still feel it. And I know a lot of people I've worked with have, have said similar things. And especially when you, when you reach a place, something that, that I sort of find fascinating, this is, this is my own tangent, is, you know, when, when we first get on a site and you're looking at, you know, wow, this is a beautiful view. This is just just a stunning landscape, you know, thousands and thousands of years ago, the indigenous people probably stood on that same place and said, wow, this is, this is a great vantage point. I can really see where, you know, the, the other tribe might be coming down the river and, oh, I can, I can see the swamp over there and, and where the, the prey might be, you know, migrating through. And, you know, we're, we're still standing there in awe and appreciating this place for, for different reasons. Um, but it's still that that connection and um mm. whenever i've i've felt that feeling usually there is a site there um you know okay, whether okay. whether it's a camp space yeah. or it's a burial you know there's there's been something there so i think That's i think there is that connection fascinating <laughs> is i mean well, well, well one of the reasons i i sort of brought that up because it's is so that because i've done a lot of this stuff about divided places right um you know the korean peninsula ireland all that sort of stuff but in 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 the rekazena the alaska uh, diamede thing i mean we've got to remember that that america bought um, uh, Alaska off Russia uh, mm. and therefore the people across the Bering Strait they see themselves as the same people right and when the Cold War and, and after they were after after that happened um, uh, the, the Alaska purchase happened there was no real border was set up so they kept going backwards and forwards as if nothing was there mm -hmm. uh, until the Cold War and then they, what happened was the ice curtain came down. They mm -hmm. call it the ice, like the iron curtain, the bamboo curtain, the ice curtain came down. And sort of overnight, families found themselves separated. Right. And that land on both sides of, um, uh, of, of the border there is considered their land. Mm -hmm. So when I was on Little Diomede and I said, uh, and, and one of the interesting things about the border there is that there are no flags there's nothing that says welcome to the united states <laughs> there are no customs posts there's no markers there's nothing in the water there uh it's just if you look at it you there's nothing to tell you that this is the border between two countries right. and i talked to one of the guys there and one of the elders on the island and i said i said how come there are no flags um you know this is a border there's usually flags. he says he says we don't need flags we know who we are Mm -hmm. And I said, ah, yes, so you're, a, you know, you're, you're an up, upstanding American citizen. <laughs> and he said, no. He said, he said, I'm an Eskimo from the Bering Strait. Right. And all of us here are Eskimos. And another guy there said, and this might resonate, I was wondering on some of the sort of sites you get it. One of the, and I had a similar conversation with an even older guy there. And he said, he says, oh, you know, he says, I'm an Eskimo. He says, uh, you never know the Japanese might buy this place next and they'll want me to call myself a J Japanese, but I'm not a Japanese. Right. I'm a native. Mm -hmm. 
is that a strong feeling sort of that you come across? I think, I mean, yes, um, definitely. It, it, honestly, it depends on the person I talk to because I've, I've worked with, you know, tribal people who have totally embraced uh, a more modern way of, mm-hmm. of thinking, of, you know, and he's like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm an American. I'm as American as, as you are, probably more so. Um, but I think because the, the history of our region is um, a little bit less mercurial, um, you know, because while the East Coast, you know, did change hands a few times, it was mm. far less recent. And um, so yes. sort of that, that, that integration has, is, is much older. And I think, um, you know, especially as things change politically, there has been um, a bit more pushback of like, no, I'm an American, you're not you know, you're right, yeah. Euro American, you know, and, <laughs> <laughs> which is, which, which is true. And you're, you're a Euro American, are you? Yeah. Um, and, uh, but it's, it, it's a strange phrase, right? And it's, yeah, it it's is, kind of interesting. And yeah. I think it's, it's sort of interesting to see how the way we phrase things too changes the way we, we look at stuff. I remember yeah. um, reading somewhere that this teacher was starting to say, instead of, you know, what is now the United States, for example, saying what is currently the United States, because it reframes it in your in your head. Um, and I'm sure you've you've encountered the way language um, changes with with politics. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it might not be the United States forever. Um, and <laughs> you know, just just sort of reminding people, just sort of reminding people of that is, um, I think, kind of important because it it sort of brings back that, you know, well, tomorrow I might be Japanese, um, but I won't be Japanese um, kind of thing. Well, I found that in, um, I had a very interesting tour. I did the music tour around Nashville and Tupelo where Elvis Presley was born and Memphis and all that. And one evening bumped into one of those reconstructions of the civil war that they have with people in uniforms doing it on the battlefields. And the guys that were doing it, from the south were staying in our holiday in hotel mm-hmm. uh, which have quite small lobbies so I struck up a conversation with them and it was about the time I think that um, ISIS had just risen up again and, and was threatening Baghdad in Iraq so it was all over the TV screens and I said to him, I said what do you think about this Iraq thing it, it, it keeps going on just opening a conversation as it were mm-hmm. and he said he said to me he said well, you know, you, you know, that's just what the Yankees do. And I didn't quite understand what he was talking about, <laughs> being, being English. And, right. and I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you know, they go into other people's countries and they say that there's a high moral cause like democracy or something, and they just want the oil and they want to tax them and, and they want to raid their homes. Yeah. And he says, that's what they do down here and they're still doing it. <laughs> And it, then the penny dropped, and here we were in I can't Tennessee or somewhere like that, and there was still this mindset mm-hmm. that that they should be an independent nation. Yeah, we see a lot of sort of dialogue around that, and sort of the roots of it. Oh, whether, really? yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, whether it's based purely in racism or if there is sort of a more economic um, background, and you know, I think like most political things, it is both very simple and very complicated. 
Yes. Um, <laughs> good way of putting it. <laughs> Excellent way of putting it. Yeah. Um, and I mean, it's 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 a huge it's a huge dialogue, and of course, like as as a white northern person, you know, I I think my place is more to to listen um, than it is right. to, to discuss. But it is very fascinating, and I think um, you know it it really shows especially in, in such a t- short time frame, right? Because the U.S., as, as we know it, is incredibly young. And so seeing how not just the events, but also our recounting of them can change so drastically in such a short amount of time, um, I think is, is really sort of mean, as, as much hi- of the story. History written by the victors, you mean? Right. Well, e- yeah. e- exactly. And then also how... Um, conversation around it can can change and um, I I took a military history course when I was in college and it was one of the best courses I could have possibly taken I just found it incredibly fascinating and it was all modern war um right and uh I which is yeah a a totally (laughs) different animal right (laughs) and of course the the because I'm working on the third um, uh, the third in this series now mm-hmm. and uh, looking and of course you know when you do a book is you're writing it now but it's not really going to come out for 18 months or a year <laughs> or something after you put it in mm-hmm. and and I'm looking at all the different types of uh, there's it's more than warfare because warfare has has merged into something so mm-hmm. so you, you had the the sort of military missile strikes and all that sort of stuff that that, that is that that stuff the infantry is more out of the way and then you had this you still had this idea of cyber attacks right but that seems to have gone on now to this interfering in elections right um and i've been looking into stuff called neuromarketing and all of this kind of digital manipulation Mm -hmm. element whereby you can win power or put your government in uh, simply by manipulating how the voters are voting. Right. And I was talking to somebody at the UN yesterday about it, actually, and I said, well, what, you know, is this cybercrime? What is it? And they said, well, it's a mix of mm-hmm. everything, but you actually have this bundle of, uh, and it'll get a name at, at some stage, sort of nonviolent warfare or something right. like that, which is going to be equally uh, potent Mm-hmm. Um, as 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 a sort of military uh, mechanism, um, well, it's, it, it's sorry, almost like yeah. propaganda in in some ways. And I mean, I, th- I think all things on the internet, it's sort of it's exactly like the outside world, just sort of um, e- extrapolated out in in yeah. some ways. But it's well, what I'm fascinated about is how actual warfare, and 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 by that I mean you know violence and and fighting. Um, has become incredibly impersonal um while yes. the more direct attacks like the cyber warfare so to speak or or whatever we want to call it um mm. has become incredibly personal the, so yes so so what you're what you're saying is that the the drone strike is actually carried out by somebody sitting in a in in in, in a, a place in nevada or something right. Mm-hmm. And therefore doesn't smell the, the blood and the explosion and hear right. the cries of those people that that uh, bullet mm-hmm. is 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 hitting, as it were. Right. Uh, uh, whereby the cyber is um, it, it is sort of undeveloped at the moment. But I know that there's a lot of um, 
uh, or there is growing pressure for there to be a kind of um, treaty within the UN sanctioned treaty on cyber. Mm -hmm. Because if you examine how far it can go and how much it can disrupt all our lives, you're actually looking at a weapon of mass destruction. Right. Right. And, uh, but, and you can see the fallout in a different way. Like, you know, yeah. when people are attacked online or their identities are stolen or whatever, yeah. um, you know, you, you watch the fallout in real time. And I think in a lot of ways, when there are actual people behind it, you know, as opposed to algorithms, it's, yes. you know, it's a very voyeuristic thing to watch, you know, someone whose life you just you know, infiltrated, so to speak, you know, you're watching that disintegrate, um, which is a horrifying thought, but, you know, in in some ways it's almost like they switched. Yes, it is. It's, Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's, and it's not, I think they've, uh, you know, they're they're talking about, I I think Trump just, you know, tore up a nuclear weapons treaty, didn't he, the other day? Yeah. (laughs) But he's sort of tearing up something that nobody's thinking about anymore. (laughs) And, or they're thinking about it. Uh, But I mean, but when you look at the, um, because one of the, my topics is the rise of China. I do nonfiction books on that. Uh, I've, I've just done one called Asian Waters, but I was looking at the Chinese building their military bases in the South China Sea, mm-hmm. whereby they, over the course of about three or four years, they constructed five fully fledged military bases in international waters. Nobody, or the, the US certainly, uh, did not uh, you know, do anything to stop them right. in military terms. Mm-hmm. And there was no blockade. There was no warning shots. There was nothing uh, that um, you know stopped China essentially taking control of one of the world's biggest. Um, what, and I was talking to someone at the uh, the, the Naval Defence College, uh, Naval War College, up in up on Rhode Island, actually, that um, mm-hmm. uh, about it. And <clears throat> you know, there's a lot of debate going on uh, because what ch- what China is actually doing there is it's changing the rules of en- you know the, the rules of engagement that embedded in something like the Geneva Convention right. is when do you actually fire that shot in anger? Mm-hmm. I mean, are you going to fire the shot against a, an engineer, an unarmed right. engineer against a Chinese fishing trawler uh, that is, is, is doing something but actually isn't a naval vessel? Mm-hmm. Uh, so they're all, these are the idea, these are the sort of military uh, questions that, are, that people are pouring at and trying to get answers from at the moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. So, sort of to circle back to to the fiction aspect, you know, oh, obviously we have we have tangents. <laughs> that, no, it's 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 awesome. That's what like I I say the tangents are always the best parts. Um, so obviously you have an incredible amount of experience, and you've seen and you know interacted with sort of these these people and and places that a lot of us never see, you know, except for maybe on the nightly news. But even then, you know, we, we don't see it in the way that you have. Um, so what, what do you see um, that, you know, other fiction writers or, um, you know, just, just sort of the, the general politics, what do you see as people getting wrong the most um, when it comes to world politics or even geopolitical thrillers that, that other people who might not have the same experience, right? Um, I think I was 
was having a conversation with some publishers at a book launch recently, mm -hmm. and we were looking at the at, at the sort of cycles that thrillers or, or, or sort of popular stuff goes in, and and we actually tracked back to the Da Vinci Code. Do you remember that? The, <laughs> yes. uh, <laughs> the thing, which I think came out what is two thousand and nine or something like that. Yeah. Um, and and we we thought that that had a you know that and then that fired a lot of the religious thrillers historical thrillers and that went up and it's still popular but then it got taken over by the domestic psychological thriller with the unreliable narrator in Gone Girl and mm -hmm. then Girl on a Train uh, which is what about six seven years old or something like that yeah. and then be, because of my own vested interest I thought what what would we have to do or what has to be done to make that old style sort of political international adventure thriller mm -hmm. come to the fore like that. And it was one of those inconclusive discussions uh, because um, there were a number of people in the room who didn't want it to come to the fore because they were involved in the domestic psychological thriller. Yeah. But actually, we, 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 what we focused on is that when you have the domestic psychological thriller, you're still dealing with the same elements that you are really with the international political thriller, except instead of having a, a sort of domestic violence within the house, you're having geopolitical violence between nations. Right. So the envy and the hatred and the, the jealousy and the love and the craving and the purposefulness and the apathy and all of those human things actually can be transferred to governments. Mm -hmm. And then within that, you can put your real human characters who are tackling tackling those things mm -hmm. but I think to answer your question more directly there the um what do I think that politics has got wrong well I the, think, sorry yes no 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 no, no go uh, for it go for it uh, no I, I, I was just gonna say I, I think that what 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 we're realizing is that the human the human character hasn't changed with the politics over the millennia mm -hmm. And when I was a young reporter, the Berlin Wall came down and the academic, I think Francis Fukuyama said, this is the end of history. Now every country is going to be democratic like us. <laughs> um, and, you know, bit by bit, it sort of fell away with Iraq and Afghanistan and then the Arab Spring that went nowhere and all the rest of it. And we realized that's not the case. And now we have the rise of China and the rise of Russia. Mm -hmm. And we in the West, uh, what are we, Euro-Americans? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Us Euro-Americans have been caught on the back foot by it. Mm -hmm. And I think that possibly that's not what hasn't yet been captured in the, in the thriller writing. Mm -hmm. uh, the point of view that's coming out of Russia or China or uh, Hungary, which is, you've got this thing called a liberal democracy. Mm -hmm. And whether it's, as you said something quite beautiful the other day, it's very simple but very complicated, whether actually it's too complicated to put into a thriller. Right. Uh, you know, whether whether the person that picks it up at the airport is going to want that level of complexity in what they think is going to be a sort of hard, straightforward, good guy, bad guy action thriller. Well, it's hard too, I think, when so much is going on and, and we're more aware of it now because of globalization and the internet than we sort of ever have been before, I think. It's sort of, do, do you want to show people a roadmap out of where we are now or do you want to give them an escape, you know? And I, I think yeah. both, both are valid, right? You know, both, both are really important. Um, but it's sort of where you want to take 
your your well, reader. Why do they pick up the book? Do they want to pick up a book in my type of book because of you know which is basically an adventure story mm -hmm. uh, to get an escape or to find out more about what they're reading in the newspapers mm -hmm. um or themselves or, sort of, or themselves <laughs> yes uh, you know you, the, these are the these are the things that i'm you know tens of millions are spent on in focus groups to find out and, <laughs> and we still don't know <laughs> and we still got no idea and and actually when it when I think of when I there's stuff that stuff that happens, I think the Arab Spring, Iraq, and all that is thing. And often I give talks about all this and, and the rise of China and all that sort of thing. And I say, look, what I what I never get is that in all the think tanks and all the universities and all the debates and all the chat shows and all that sort of stuff that's going on in the background of it, why are we always missing the trick? Mm -hmm. Um, and it began in my sort of career with the fall of the Berlin Wall that nobody had predicted. Right. Yet there were all those think tanks having these debates and discussions and writing their papers with their subclauses and footnotes. <laughs> and then suddenly, oh, you don't get it. And the, as I think, I mean, the, the South China Sea thing, the Arab Spring, the Iraq thing. Why did we think that we could go into a country and suddenly this panoply of great institutions would come down with a fair police force and an uncorrupt judiciary and a post service that worked and all the rest of it and a prime minister that would be basically honest propped up by a, a sort of strong uh, administration why do we think how did we ever think that could ever happen right. when both in Europe and in the US uh, it has taken a huge amount of bloodshed and thought and education and everything to even get to where we are now Mm -hmm. Well, I think in a lot of ways, it, it sort of goes back to that interaction you had on the island where, you know, that, that elder was saying, oh, well, we're, we're not American, you know, and if the Japanese bought us, we wouldn't be Japanese. It's sort of a lot of those decisions, especially with the like, oh, well, everyone's going to be democratic now, you know, doesn't yes. take into consideration the history of the people who are in that location. And something that, that I look at a lot is how the landscape has um, shaped those people and their culture um, for millennia, you know, so much longer than any, any kingdom or nation has, has ever lasted. And you, you can't make decisions about a people without taking that into consideration. And, and even then you might get it wrong. Yeah, and you're talking about the basic sort of the rivers and the mountains and the coastlines and all that sort of stuff, that landscape that they mm. have to live with that molds their character. Right, exactly. Where, yeah. where there aren't boundaries, you know, like borders aren't yeah. actual things, you know, <laughs> they just exist in our heads. They're not real. <laughs> exactly. And, yep. and what, what governments have done is, um, uh, you know, what we did, what Britain did as a is that we just went and drew lines. Mm -hmm. through tribal <laughs> communities and all the rest of it uh, and thought it would work right and spoiler yeah. alert it didn't <laughs> yeah, spo yeah spoiler alert <laughs> um so yeah. so tell us a little bit about where um where people can find you and where they can pick up um your your books um now that they're very intrigued if if they don't <laughs> want an escape <laughs> <laughs> yes th yeah thank you the well the they, they have a, my website is, uh, is humphreyhawksley.com. That's H-U-M-P-H-R-E-Y-H-A-W-K-S-L for London, E-Y.com. And within that, there are direct lines to the two books. So Man on Edge is 
manonedge.co.uk and manonice's manonice.co.uk and that goes straight to there and there are the buying buttons there and and Amazon is, you know, usually, you know, the easiest one. So there's right. a US buying button and the UK one. But I do say that if you're in a community in a town and you've got an independent bookshop, go into the bookshop and order it, or they might have it. But if they don't, they'll order it. They'll get it in a day or two, and that keeps those independent mm -hmm. bookshops alive. Always support um, local. <laughs> always support the local bookshops mm -hmm. because you know they're closing. Uh, hand over fist they're finding it difficult and uh, I, I support my I buy off Amazon but when I'm uh, I've got a local bookshop on the coast in um, in 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 uh, in England uh, mm -hmm. and um, you know I just sort of breathe beautifully when I see that it's full of people buying books there right yeah yeah for sure yeah. Um, well th thank you so much for for talking oh. with me and I'll be sure to put all those links down below um, so people can, can easily find you. And, Brilliant. Uh, and thanks for such a fascinating conversation. <laughs> no, you too. This is, I'm, <laughs> I'm always amazed at like, the, the stuff that I never think that we're going to talk about, you know, because I, I, I have my little plan, but then it, it usually just gets completely thrown out the window in, in a wonderful way. And, um, well, that, that, that was great. What, yeah. what didn't we talk about? I know, right? I'm going well, to check out a bit of that New England archaeology now, straight after finishing this. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's, what's sort of fascinating, and I was just telling my mom this, is, you know, I, I've noticed that I'll have a conversation, you know, out, out in the real world um, with, with someone. And then a few days later, my podcast guest will have some connection to that conversation. And right it's it's bizarre and my mom was just talking to me about um slave free chocolate and then oh. i was on i was on your site and i'm like oh my god <laughs> <laughs> we didn't we didn't get that we, we didn't no. i had it written no. down but you know we we touched pretty much everything else so that's oh, that's the one goodness. thing we didn't talk about yeah that was that was my great campaign that's still yeah. going they there's somebody one of my former colleagues he's just done a huge expose in guatemala on it um, and that was on coffee, on yeah. coffee. So we did the chocolate, sugar cane, all of those child, child right. labor supply lines. It became very depressing after a time because, right, um, uh, you know, the interest was limited and mm -hmm. you weren't getting anywhere against big corporations. But there right. we go. Yeah. Well, I, I'll have to uh, show her your site and, and let her go Do down that. That, that rabbit hole. She's... <laughs> She she has a journalist mind, um, you know. She ah. she worked as an editor for for a very long time, so she oh brilliant. She yeah. likes a good story. <laughs> <laughs> well, so that's, that's it. well, if if she googles, um, I think it's Guatemala uh, coffee child slavery or child labor, she'll get up the the documentary that came out last week on it. Oh, okay, awesome. Yeah, yeah. she she, yeah. she might have already found that because she was yeah. She was up like all night doing the research. So. <laughs> yeah. Oh, lovely. Well, thanks so much. And best of luck. Yeah, thank you. This has been the Amphibian Press Podcast. I'm V.S. Holmes. And with me today was Humphrey Hawksley, BBC consultant and thriller writer. Thank you so much for listening.